this is Coffee Number 5. I'm your host, Lara Schmoisman. Hi, Michael. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it's such a pleasure to see you again and to get to talk to you about one of the things that really, really moved me and is about empathy, about caring. Care, can I say that is caring for others? How do you explain empathy? So empathy has, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, <laughs> of course. Empathy is one of those things that is often uh, differently defined depending on who you ask. So the reason for that is because there are three main types of empathy and they all are performed in very different ways. So this is a slightly longer answer than you were probably hoping for, but I think it's important. The, the uh, first... No, no, go for it. I mean, yeah. I'm super interested, so... Yeah, the first is uh, effective empathy, right, with an A. And effective empathy is like the golden rule. It's if I perceive that you're sad, then I'm going to treat you the way I would want to be treated if I was sad. And the problem with that is that what if when you're sad, you want to be left alone? And when I'm sad, I want to be consoled, right? So my, my action won't actually be truly what you want, it will be what I perceive you want, right? So there's bias that comes in with that. And that's what most people think of when they think of empathy. That's why most people think empathy means be nice, be compassionate, be sympathetic, because that's what we all want people to be to us, right? But that's not actually the way we work with empathy for corporations because effective empathy isn't always right. I might get that wrong. Like in this example here, I might treat you one way that I think you should be treated, but actually might not be what you want. The second is called somatic empathy and somatic empathy is physically feeling what someone else is going, embodying their emotions. And so that might be uh, like a spouse who's having sympathy pains when their wife is pregnant. It might be someone who is, uh, like a nurse who is experiencing and feeling the pain of the patients that they're working with because they're so connected emotionally to them. That again is not what we're talking about in, in the work that we do because it's very hard to train and it doesn't have a lot of commercial applicability and it doesn't make people uh, lead better or collaborate better necessarily. The third type, which is where ours begins, is in cognitive empathy and cognitive empathy is about training the muscle of the mind to step out of the self and to see the world from someone else's perspective and to gain that insight into how they see the world and so I think of it sometimes like uh, the platinum rule if the first one was the golden rule the platinum rule would be do unto others as they would have you do unto themselves, right? And so that's mm -hmm. really about getting to know them. And so I think that that is the fundamental bedrock upon which true empathy is built. I mean, this is amazing. So we're saying that empathy is something that it can be learned somehow and, and modify. Yes. Well, I think as an individual, you can learn how to practice it through particularly cognitive empathy. You couldn't learn somatic empathy necessarily. It's something that just happens, right? But cognitive empathy, you can learn. You can start to build a practice. You can start to become a better question asker, become a better listener, become more present. You know, all of these things help us kind of connect and understand, with, uh, understand others better. Um, but in, in addition, I think it's also something that when we do it, we can learn a lot more and a lot deeply, a lot more deeply about other people as well. This is so interesting because I'm, as everyone knows, I'm all about storytelling and I'm about 
understanding. I, I ask always a lot of questions. And to understand what make people tick, what uh, make people's or brands be who they are. And uh, something that impressed me a lot about you was the way you were explaining this when I met you in a conference and how you were um, telling a story. You were doing storytelling about this. So you think through storytelling, people can understand more because every person understands differently and and apply empathy or apply an empathy in the story will make people understand differently? I think that stories help people digest complex narratives better because mm -hmm. it gives you imagery, it gives you things to latch on to along the way. So when you saw me speak at South by Southwest, you know, part of the, the presentation I gave included case studies, mm -hmm. right? So you could actually see this theory this methodology, this intangible idea that we were there talking about, empathy, in practice. You could see what it looks like when you are in a room asking people questions and what those answers start to help inform and how that made us design things differently or whatever it was. And so I think that's one aspect of it. And then the other is, I think, giving people helpful tools. So in, in my book, Applied Empathy, one of the things that we focus on is every chapter will explain some type of theory that we use. It will give a case study. And then at the end of the chapter, there are exercises, there are tools. Because if you don't give people something to do, then they have a lot of ideas, but they're going to be stuck in their head. What we want to do is help pull it out of the head and into action. And that's why we call it applied empathy, because mm -hmm. without application, all of that good understanding goes to waste. If I spent time talking with you for the next hour and really got to know you super, super well, and then did nothing about that new information. If I continued to ha keep our relationship exactly as it was an hour before, well, then what's the point, right? It's, it's what am I going to do with that newfound understanding and insight that's going to ultimately make our relationship, our collaboration, our partnership better? This is great. I mean, I'm always thinking about teamwork and how, how can you make a team perform better? Because there's so many boundaries, and you get to know when you work with someone very closely, you get to know them as a person also. So when I'm sure in your workshops, is, this is something that comes up, right? In, in the company's relationships and how to, uh, how to work with those relationships and that knowledge and where do you apply the empathy? How we choose those boundaries? Yeah, and how they change over time, right? When you exactly. first, when you start a new job, your relationship with your colleagues, your relationship with your boss is very different than it might be six months from then, right? And what have you done in those six months? Well, you've had deeper conversations. You've made some mistakes. They've made some mistakes. You've learned how people handle stress. You've learned what happens when a problem uh, or a project doesn't get solved the exact way everyone thought it would and who steps up and changes things for the better, who complains, you know, all of this sort of stuff, right? We are constantly in a, uh, a stream of actions and behaviors that if we're present enough and observant enough, all of that is good data. All of that is something you can learn and absorb and understand and know that this colleague if I want to work well with them, we need to work in a quiet space one-on-one. -on -one. 
And this group of people, in order to be successful, we need to get in a room with a whiteboard and talk and, you know, be messy and make stuff because that's the way they work better, right? And as a services business, Subrosa, my company, spends a lot of time starting to understand with our clients how they work and how they work best and adjusting our style to meet their style because we can't expect all of them to work the way we work. We wouldn't have any clients, right? As yeah. a service business, well, we have, we have to adjust. We're very similar in that regard. Yeah. Uh, but the question is, at the end of the day, what we do with the information and how we train ourselves, our, our team, to work in that information in a way that the log logistics works for everyone, for yes. us, for our So how will we reach that point? And I mean, that's a huge step. What tips will you give a small group or a team of people that they need to change their ways to work better together, but also to work with an outside force? I think, I mean, it's, it's hard to say generally because you, we don't know what every group is working with, but I will say a couple of general tips that can get it started. One is if you're not having detailed, deep conversations with each other about what's working and what isn't working, you're not going to know where to even focus. Mm -hmm. So first and foremost, identify the strengths and the weaknesses of the relationship as it currently stands. And when you identify those weaknesses, have real conversations about them. Why do we think we do this this way? Why do we keep making this mistake? What do we need to change? The problem that most people have is not that they don't know the problem, but that they don't want to do the hard work to change it. And so when you find this problem, whatever it is, maybe we're not good communicators. Okay, if that's the case, what are we going to do to become better communicators? Because you can't just snap your fingers and say, now we're better communicators. Now tomorrow we're going to come in and talk, and, and talk more uh, efficiently to each other. It doesn't work that way. But that means that you have to spend time that people usually don't want to have or money that people mm -hmm. don't want to spend to do training, to do personal development work, to you know, find a pilot project to try a new process on and see if it works. You know, these are the types of things that when you say them to people who are happy enough with the status quo, they're not going to work that hard for that. They're not going to take the extra step. But ultimately, if we want to go from good to great, we have to do the hard work. We have to slow down before we speed up. We have to change processes that might, be, might have worked in the past but don't work today, right? But that's uncomfortable. It makes people feel like they have to do more work or spend more time or spend more money, and they don't like that. But that's actually where the, the magic happens. So at the end of the day, it's all about the will. Yeah, that is so exactly right. So something that always, uh, it's very interesting how we people are business-wise and also in a team, we get to know people. And also what I found interesting is like when you know that something happened in someone's life or someone has a problem, how do you limit how, how you limit how empathetic you are? I mean, how can you manage those, that empathy? Because there are limits and they're like gray areas and there is a no-no area. So how empathy works in those ways and affects the, the teamwork or the work efficiency? I think you have to understand the person you're working with and where their comfort level is and how much is too much. Because for many people, you can go too far and you can create discomfort as opposed to closeness. So the only way you're going to find that out is through conversation. If you guess, you're guessing 
based on your opinion, not theirs. And so that's not going to help. So you've got to ask them. You've got to understand what the the depth and the willingness is on both sides in order to to get to that that right calibration. And then you have to prove it. You have to build trust. You have to show that what they've shared with you has help change the way you interact with them, right? Because like I said earlier, empathy without application is useless, right? You tell me, you tell me I work best when you give me constructive criticism in private and the next time you do something that's wrong and I uh, call you out on it in front of five colleagues, right? Like, well, then you don't have any trust to tell me something next time because I've just done exactly what you told me you don't benefit from. Right. And so those types of things are only learned through inquiry and through the processing of that understanding into action. So what are you saying at the end of the day is that this all understanding and being empathetic is changing the narrative of how we're communicating with others. Very much so. And it builds closer relationships. It builds more efficient teams. It builds more insightful work product. So the steps would be first understanding. Do you have steps of what, how all this would work? Like understanding, then um, applying, then uh, I don't know what it would be. It would be uh, after applying. I can, I can, yeah, I can. Uh, yeah. The process, the process we typically go through is the first step is about exploration, okay. right? And that's about curiosity, inquiry, lifting up rocks, looking underneath them, seeing what's there, right? Really pursuing understanding through dialogue, Mm -hmm. through observation, through documentation, right? So all of these different research methodologies that we can use, and you can say research methodology and make it seem like it's an enormous monstrous thing, but having a one-on-one conversation with a colleague is a form of research too, right? It's peer research. We're learning about each other. That's step one. Step two is solution building, right? So with all of that exploration, what have we identified as opportunities that we can, or insights that we can use to inform solutions, right? I've heard from everybody that we have a communication problem. Okay, what are some of the ways we might solve that? And now you spend the time solution building, right? And then once you've built what might be the right solutions conceptually, then you develop them. Right. So now blow them out. So if one of them is now we need to build a training program so that we can learn how to communicate better, you build out the training program. And then the last step is application. Mm-hmm. That's doing it. That's actually saying, okay, we, we asked a bunch of questions. We looked at all the solutions. We picked the ones that made the most sense. We built them out. Now let's deploy them and see what happens. That's the process we go through. That's so great. And I have one last question and I know that you're really busy guys. So I want to let you go, but, um, all this team and works are now using a lot of external tools like um, management, team management. How do you feel like that changes the, the communication in a team and how it's kind of impossible to apply empathy when you don't see it or you're not communicating with the person one-to-one? I don't know. I mean, I feel like Slack has actually really helped us be a better team uh, for a couple of reasons. When before Slack, before our company was on it, um, we all had a lot more emails Uh we we had to answer. We had um, the uh, 
inability to filter what emails are important to me because you can't, it, it took more discipline for someone to say like, even though there are seven people copied on this email, this is really for you, Michael, pay attention. You know, like mm -hmm. if people are not disciplined about communicating that way over email, then seven people are reading that email before they realize they don't have to do anything. And it's really just for their information. It's only one person, you know, you can see how this becomes a, yeah. a mess, right? So for us, Slack has actually become a really valuable communication tool that is more empathic someone's out of the office and they flip their uh their uh direct messages to auto response and says i'm out today great now i know they're out i don't need to you know like there's a there's a shorthand and there's a speed and there's an efficiency and there's a there's a um organization that that has given us that actually lets us be more meaningful when we are together because all of the other stuff sits there all of the like process stuff sits in slack so that when we're in the room together we can just be in the room together we don't have to say remember that email i sent you seven days ago and maybe you read it maybe you didn't i know all of that already and we can just sit and do the job yeah we're big big believers of slack we love it and they are not sponsoring either you or me, I believe. Yeah, no, I'm not. I don't have, I don't have <laughs> but Slack no, sponsorship. But uh, I, we use uh, as a communication is great, but I can see out there, there are so many people trying to use these new softwares that they're just for scheduling and someone puts schedules for them and it's all about what percentage is done or finalized. Mm -hmm. And I, I found personal that really hard to work with because you don't see who is the other day in the other side. Can you work with this deadline? I feel like we're missing that. Mm. Yeah, I think that's that's pretty idiosyncratic. I mean, we use one of those uh, project management tools as well, but the input is solicited by everyone who's working on the project before it's set. So your hours aren't told. You only have 10 hours to do a 20-hour job. You input in, this is a 20-hour job. And then we have a conversation. Can we get it done in 20 hours? Does it need to be 25? Does it need, what would it happen if it has to be 15? What do we have to change? Do we need another person on it? And we do all of that pre-work before it goes into the software so that we don't have that problem later on. So the way for teams to communicate is to use the software as part of their communication. To use it uh, as a tool. Yeah, I would say as, a, as an accountability metric. Okay. That's wonderful. Well, Michael, thank you so much for being here. I really enjoy your book. I enjoy your presentation. And I now enjoy talking to you again. Yeah, thank so, you. And we'll be talking soon again, I hope. It was so good to have you here today. See you next time. Catch you on the flip side. Ciao, ciao.